This is an ABC podcast. This week, Australia's first human trials for a potential COVID-19 vaccine began with 130 people involved. Three weeks ago, Australia's first human trials of a potential COVID-19 vaccine began in Melbourne. Around the globe, researchers and drug companies are using volunteers to test potential vaccines. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. But clinical trials are not without their risk. In a trial in France in 2016, a young man died and several others suffered brain damage as a result of their participation. The worst affected patient was rushed to hospital just three days after he began taking the drug regularly. We thought the patient was having a stroke. The patient's condition deteriorated really quickly and he is now brain dead. So what are the procedures put in place to protect people involved in clinical trials? Why do people volunteer to be in them? And what are the ethical standards these trials must conform to? The way it happens these days is the clinical research organisation, which is a private company, will test a drug after a company, a pharmaceutical company or a manufacturing company, has an idea for something that they want to develop and sell. Alex O'Meara is the author of Chasing Medical Miracles, The Promise and Perils of Clinical Trials. It rarely starts with a creative or uh, substantially altruistic idea in mind. I think the biggest thing that we have that we can remember that is Jonas Salk testing the polio vaccine in the 50s and inoculating uh, school children. That was a very widespread and famous clinical trial. That, however, is not the typical model. The typical model is a corporate-run idea, much in the same way that most of the hamburgers we eat today are corporately made and not the idea of someone who's a gourmet chef. So do we have any idea just how many clinical trials take place every year in America and how many people are involved in those? We have estimates. Getting clear answers is difficult. The reason for that is that if you're a private enterprise, you don't have to reveal everything you do. There's something in America called the Trade Secrets Act, which means if you're a company and you think someone can benefit from knowing your information, you can keep that information hidden. Right now, there's an estimation of 20 million people in the United States, 50 million people around the world. That's still probably good. It's a 24 to 30 billion dollar a year industry. It's massive. And it's grown up very quietly because, again, nobody really notices. Drugs come out. They don't know where they come from. They're happy they're there. And they just exist and treatments and new things. But they all, everything has to be tested and sometimes repeatedly and in multiple and very far flung studies. While most of the major drug companies are based in America and Europe, clinical trials are conducted across the globe. And as Laura Stark, Professor in the Centre for Medicine, Health and Society at Vanderbilt University explains, the testing is frequently done not by drug companies themselves, but by companies set up specifically to run clinical trials. Many companies now use contract research organizations, and so these are the people on the ground who actually have to enact the proper protocol, the best standards for informed consent. And so in these actual clinical or field interactions, many of them happening in languages other than, for example, the home country of the manufacturer of the drug itself, 
these layers of interpretation lead to a lot of variability. And one thing also to bear in mind is that it's just a highly privatized system. So both drug manufacturers, the one doing the drug development, and also the research organizations with whom the companies contract have incentives other than simply the production of scientific knowledge, which would then go back to the FDA for approval. They have a lot of uh, moving parts to keep in mind, not only regulation, but their own bottom line financially. Oh, look, it's a massive business. Big pharmaceutical companies that do this clinical development phase, they're household names. Bruce Neal, vascular epidemiologist based at the George Institute for Global Health. And it's often said that to get a drug from that sort of basic chemistry through into the market can cost upwards of a billion dollars. And there are many drugs that fall by the wayside along the way. And in part, it's the the money that you sort of, in inverted commas, waste on those drugs that don't make it that pushes up the price of the ones that you do actually get through the system. This modern-day corporate system is very different from the way clinical trials were conducted before World War II. There are two important differences in the pre-World War II period with the way in which clinical trials work today. The first is just in terms of the people who served in clinical trials. Before World War II, research was done on people who were either sick Or when it was done on healthy people, it was people who had some sort of debt to the state, like soldiers or prisoners, or else they had some sort of intimate relationship with a researcher, so lots of family members and students and these kinds of people. After World War II, there was about a 30-year period in which the nature of the people who served in in clinical trials really changed. And we got this sort of anonymous, large-scale market in which civilians could just be paid to participate in clinical trials. And this was really unusual, not only because of the scale, but because of the types of people. So no longer having to have a state obligation, but simply it was more of like a labor market system. Before World War II, you only really had to show that a drug was safe in order for it to actually be on the market. One of the major shifts in 1962, which is when the U.S. passed the Food and Drug Amendments, was that the drugs not only had to be safe, but they also had to be proven to be effective or efficacious. So it can sound really strange in retrospect that you only had to have a drug be proven to be safe to not kill people, but you didn't have to really worry about whether you could show that it worked. If people wanted to buy it, well, it was up to them. That really changed in 1962. After World War II and the exposure of what Nazi doctors had done, the Nuremberg Code was established. It set out a series of ethical principles for human experimentation. However, these principles still left ethical decisions in the hands of doctors. Things like the Nuremberg Code and the sets of rules, the ethics codes that medical professions have, these still leave power in the hands of the researchers and the medical profession itself in making decisions about what's right and wrong. So they still have professional autonomy. In the 1970s, when rules for the treatment of human subjects were passed by governments, in the United States it was called the National Research Act of 1974, this was a huge shift because 
external bodies then had control over these kinds of decisions. So there was a real backlash. And there's remained over the decades lots of resistance and dissatisfaction with these regulations from medical and also social science profession. Some of it's with good reason. A lot of the rules are fairly cumbersome. And also they get outdated very quickly as technologies, as methods change over time. But one of the big underlying issues that's remained to the present day since the 1970s is the issue of who should have control over making decisions about how human subjects are treated, the researchers or governments. So how does this system work today and what is the process for getting a new drug onto the market? The first stage of drug discovery There's obviously millions and millions of different chemicals out there and someone has to identify a signal that this might be of benefit for a a particular health problem. And there are now, as I understand it, some pretty sophisticated ways of doing that. But this is all sort of chemistry, tubes, petri dishes, that sort of laboratory-based research. Now, many of the things that get looked at there will get dropped pretty quickly and it's just a small proportion of them that will then sort of progress through. And the next substantive phase of research would be animal research where you'd actually start to test these agents in small animals and then potentially in in some larger animals to get a better indication of what benefits they're likely to cause as well as what adverse effects there are likely to be. Once you reach a certain sort of point in, in your research, you obviously have to start testing it in humans. And the first type of test that you would do in humans would be called a a phase one clinical trial. And this sort of trial is usually done in very controlled conditions, very small numbers of people. And the idea is to, to give the drug and then track in incredible detail what happens to it when you put it into the body. You're not really looking at this point for the, the potential benefit of it for the condition, but you're looking to understand how does the kidney manage it when it goes in? What does it get turned into? Does it get broken down by the liver? And you obviously get um, potentially a a little bit of an idea then about potential safety and efficacy. Phase one trials are almost always done in Western countries and typically using healthy young men. They usually don't use women because a new drug may affect their fertility. So how do they get healthy young men to consent to being human guinea pigs? Roberto Abadie is the author of The Professional Guinea Pig, Big Pharma and the Risky World of Human Subjects. Well, they created a market without these docile bodies that would take the risks for the money, for the reward. They wouldn't have drugs coming into their pipelines. They wouldn't have any profits. So they said, oh, it is a market economy. Just pay people. And some people went once and never show back again because it's it's painful and it's risky and there's, you know, some people with more options had better things to do. But for some, it became their strategy or main way of getting an income. So they keep going back and back and back. People that are unemployed, unemployable, people that actually came out of prison. The companies recruit at the gates of the prisons in the U.S. They are waiting for them outside. They cannot get them when they are inside, of course, but they're waiting for them. Homeless, people with addiction problems, and just people that lost their jobs or their main income, they're trying to supplement their income or buy a new car or repair something or a new flat screen TV. Black people, black youth, for example, Latinos, that are really discriminated against in the job market, they really look at this economy as an opportunity to actually, you know, get some kind of income. 
So can people make a profession out of going from one clinical trial to another? In the United States, you can because you have to wait 30 days in between trials. There's no centralized registry, so there's no way of policing that. In Europe, you have to wait three, I don't remember exactly, it's either three or four months in between trials, and there's a registry, so they check. There's a database set by the pharmaceutical industries, not the governments, but the industry set up a registry to prevent abuses. But in the U.S., people do eight, 10, 12 clinical trials a year, so they can make $20,000, $25,000 in good years, that's much higher than the poverty level in the U.S. And were people that you spoke to who are doing this much more in a professional way, or even people who don't do it in a professional way, do they really understand the risks they might be taking? They have a sense, for example, that some drugs are bad for them. Psychiatric drugs, you know, uh, psychotropics, cancer drugs, HIV drugs, which they feel they're very toxic, are not good for them. But the problem is that even when they have a sense that some, some drugs are not good for them, like psychotropic, psychiatric drugs, those are the highest paying drugs. They pay more than $5,000 to participate in a clinical trial. And they do that because they know people don't want to do it. So everybody I interviewed and, uh, for my book said that I don't want to do this, but they all admitted that they had done it at least once because the money was too big to refuse. And if you are homeless, for example, or if you are black, and you have even fewer job prospects. You know, you, st- you, you don't think about this risk in the same way. And they say, I can't afford to think about risks. I really need the money. I'm grateful for the opportunity, actually. So they know about the risks, but sometimes they cannot avoid them because they need the money. They got used to it or they really need it. So it's a very tricky kind of thing. It's an ongoing question of even what true informed consent could possibly look like. I think one of the things that um, can be assumed too quickly is that what represents informed consent is a signature on a form. And only in the 1960s that the notion that signing a form was somehow a superior evidence that someone truly understood something really came into being. Prior to that, you would make a note in a chart, or you would simply have a conversation. So there's a trade-off between having better documentation, which is very useful for legal settings to have legal evidence of consent, as opposed to an actual um, interaction in which many people would say is actually superior quality. Language barriers come into this quite a bit, but the question of what actually indicates consent is an important one and quite unresolved. When we're talking about phase one trials, so the first in human trials that actually are very lucrative, they pay very well, and they do tend to recruit and the CROs, the contract research organizations, also target people who would be most in need of of money. It really speaks to issues of structural inequalities, disparities in socioeconomic circumstances. That is something that's beyond consent. I mean, it's, it's something that is a broader and but equally as important political issue to address and acknowledge in the clinical trials system. This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince, and we're revisiting a program about the history and efficacy of human clinical trials. So if a drug passes the phase one trial, what happens next? 
you then move into phase two trials. These are typically trials which are done in people who have got the disease or condition, but again, are fairly small numbers of people, highly controlled. So if we, if we were talking the, the statin example, these would be people with perhaps abnormal cholesterol levels. And you would give the drug to tens or maybe a few hundred people to try and get a sense of how much you need to give, what sort of dose. Again, looking perhaps in the first time to, to see what are the effects of the drug on cholesterol itself. Is it behaving as we'd expect? And you come away from those trials with a bit of a better sense of whether it's likely to work or not. And you've got some safety data in perhaps a few hundreds of people. That's not enough to get you into the market. What you've then got to do is go and do much larger studies, phase two or early phase three studies, typically done in many hundreds or thousands of people, where you really pin down what is the effect of this statin on cholesterol levels? Is it well tolerated? Has it got any serious adverse effects? Now, typically at that point, when you've shown clear benefit, good safety, on the target that you're aiming for and the population group you're aiming for, at that point, you might make an application to a regulatory agency to, to put this into the marketplace. And typically, um, for the last 10, 20, 30 years, that's the phase at which drugs have moved into the market. Now, however, following a number of significant problems and significant sort of drug recalls where we've seen drugs that have been registered then found to either have no effect on the really important downstream outcomes that you want, so preventing strokes, heart attacks, kidney disease, and potentially even significant adverse effects which occur infrequently, but so infrequently they're not picked up in that earlier phase research, but actually turn out to be clinically important later on. Some drugs have ended up being on the market for a number of years and then actually being withdrawn. So what the regulators are starting to do now is say, actually, before you get into the market, we don't want just a few thousand patients worth of data. We want 10,000 patients worth of data. And we actually want to know, does this drug prevent strokes and heart attacks, not just does it lower cholesterol? So the sort of the standards for getting a drug onto the market are increasing. The volunteers used in phase two and phase three trials are typically people who have the medical condition the new drug is trying to help. These volunteers are not in it for the money, but rather they're looking for a cure. The volunteers are looking for uh, hope. They're looking for something to extend their lives or alleviate their suffering. The people who are conducting the trials are holding out that possibility of hope that otherwise cannot be found. I was involved, I'm a type 1 diabetic, I was involved in a clinical trial to cure type 1 diabetes by taking islet cells, which are cells in the human pancreas that make insulin, and they would take them from cadaver pancreases and they would transplant them into my liver. And by doing that, they would make insulin for me and then I would be cured. And I went through it, it was very arduous, very difficult, the surgery itself wasn't, but I had to take immunosuppression and it went on for a very long time. The islets eventually failed. They didn't live. What I realized from that experience was, one, if you have a condition, I had type 1 diabetes, have type 1 diabetes, that you're skewed in being very um, agreeable to all kinds of things to do to yourself with the possibility of curing type 1 diabetes. I mean, if, if someone told me I had to light my face on fire every day to cure type 1 diabetes, I'd probably say, okay, you know, where's the match? Because it's that bad. You know, people, especially people with conditions that might shorten their lives, emphysema or cancer especially, are prone to test something new. 
And I also realized that people, when I told them I was on a clinical trial, they kind of thought I was getting something wholesale and not retail, you know? Like somehow I had an in and I was going to try this cool new thing. Well, it's not a cool new thing. It might kill me, you know? The immunosuppression I took increases my chance of getting cancer in my life by 900%. So what it taught me was that there's a lot of desperation in clinical trials. It taught me that a lot of people who volunteer for trials are under either implied or direct duress. And it also taught me the actual experience of how proactive each subject has to be when they're in a trial to say no or to ask questions because without the subject, the trial stops. So you should be able to do what not whatever you want, but you should be able to ask what's going on, what's happening, what is this going to do, how is that going to do it. The issue that you mentioned was one that's conventionally called therapeutic misconception. So the idea of hope, more or less, or even if a patient clearly knows in a later phase study that they may get a placebo, that it may not actually be effective, that nonetheless, the issue of holding on to hope can actually motivate people in ways that are beyond what you would think of as the constraints on textbook informed consent. So I would think of informed consent almost like we think of utopia. It's something to aspire towards and always impossible ever to get there. So when I wrote my book about not just my experience, but experiences for everyone and how clinical trials function in a corporate way and and in other ways, it was eye-opening to the fact that so many people go through this, that this is not a unique circumstance by any means, that it's getting more frequent in people's lives, and that it is, at the end of the day, interesting. You know, you're sitting there going, is it going to work? Miraculous things. Uh, debilitating things, very dramatic. But I came to eventually, to other people and to myself, describe clinical trials as being like the extreme sports of medicine. Regulators today demand that new drugs be tested on not thousands, but tens of thousands of subjects. And to meet that standard, contract research organisations set up clinical trials in places like China, India and Africa. Yeah, look, we've seen a a really interesting shift over the last 10 years in the clinical trial space where big markets like India, China and other developing countries have started to become a real focus for clinical research. The reasons are are several fold. I mean, the first is that there are very large numbers of people there. There is now a good infrastructure uh, to do that type of research uh, in those countries. And you've got lots of investigators, doctors, research teams in those countries who are up and coming and who want to be part of this field of research. At the same time, you've also got huge numbers of people in these countries with diseases that need treatments. And in the past, what we've done is basically done all the drug research in a few developed Western countries and sort of assumed that the results that we find over here in Australia or in the UK or the US are going to be applicable to populations in really very different settings. And that may well be true, but it also might not be true. So there's a strong sort of scientific rationale for going to these countries, as well as a commercial rationale from the pharmaceutical company perspective, because those companies now also see their markets in developing low middle income country settings as well. I went to Uganda for three weeks and I uh, met a guy who makes bricks for a living and he has AIDS, full-blown AIDS. His daughter, who's six years old, has HIV. His wife died of AIDS. His son died of AIDS 
twice Western companies had come to his house to see if he would try some experimental medication. And he walks five miles each way twice a month to get medication for him and his daughter. And he said no to these people. They offered to fix his roof. It's amazing that this person said no, okay? And I asked him why he didn't go with that. I mean, you're getting your roof fixed and there seems like they might throw a little money your way. And he said, but the drugs I have are working. Why would I do that? And I was like, wow, I wish more people could see it that way. So, but most people do. And what, they, what they're looking for, if you cut through it, is they're looking for treatment. They're looking for a cure. And they want to suspend their own disbelief. They want to suspend what they're told. And they're told in a 25-page, 30-page form that you sign a consent form, okay, that this might not work. We're not promising any treatment. But it's like buying a lottery ticket and going, yeah, I know the odds are slim, but what if? However, a lot of things are tested that don't end up with a cure and even do some harm. You know, my own clinical trial did not end up successfully for me. The, uh, the cells died. I was no longer cured. Am I regretful that I did it even with that in mind? No, absolutely not because it was the first time since having uh, type 1 diabetes since the age of 11 that I could actually go on the offense, that I could take some steps toward maybe affecting my own condition and my own life with this condition in my own way. And that's a great feeling. Do the same regulations apply all around the world? Well, they probably don't, but the intent is that they do. So for these big phase three, phase four clinical trials, the sponsor will spend a lot of time training all the sites, everyone involved in the study, to adhere to a given set of standard operating procedures. And most countries that don't have their own regulatory agency, so developing low-middle-income countries where research is done, will simply adopt the regulatory standards of the US or the Europeans or the Japanese. Of course, whether things get properly implemented or not all the time is very difficult to know because it's a, a massive organisation and it's global. But the intent is definitely there. A groundbreaking coronavirus vaccine will be tested on West Australians in one of the first human trials in the world. I think there's a huge mix of trials being done in the COVID space at the moment. Some of them would be being led by big commercial entities, pharmaceutical companies, vaccine development companies, and then they would subcontract work to clinical research organisations in, in the usual way. I think the speed of getting COVID research online has resulted in a couple of things. I think the first is that a lot of the infrastructure that would normally be used to support a really diverse range of research has been focused onto COVID. I think the consequence of that is that the quality of research, the ethical review and things is still likely to be pretty good for the COVID research, even though it's being done more quickly. The downside of it is that research in other areas has suffered as a consequence. It's been put quite reasonably on the back burner. But if we're going to do things more rapidly, more efficiently in the future, we are going to need additional infrastructure to enable us to, to push things through the system more quickly. But does the speed of the research mean that ethical standards may be compromised? There's always a challenge when you try to do things more quickly that you're not able to do them as rigorously. Now, in Australia, we have a pretty good process for reviewing projects, for getting high quality information statements to patients and a rigorous consent process. Can we be absolutely certain that we're, we're getting patients into studies who are as well informed as they might be? I don't think 
it is something that I would be overly concerned about because we do have really good systems and infrastructure in place in Australia. Whether that is the case for other countries, particularly countries that are less well-resourced, I think is a very real question. The race to find an effective vaccine involves researchers around the world. At this point in time, there are over 50 companies, five zero companies, uh, looking into developing a COVID-19 vaccine. If a company discovers a vaccine, it's obviously going to be worth a huge amount of money. One of the big challenges is going to be figuring out how to get vaccine out in an equitable way to those who most need it rather than those who are most able to pay for it. And I don't think that we've got a good track record of doing that with any therapy. And I fear that we're not well placed to know how to do that with a COVID vaccine either. Bruce Neal, vascular epidemiologist based at the George Institute for Global Health. My other guests, Alex O'Meara, the author of Chasing Medical Miracles. Laura Stark, professor in the Centre for Medical Health and Society at Vanderbilt University. And Roberto Abadie, the author of The Professional Guinea Pig. Today's sound engineers are Judy Rapley and Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.